0: This is The Oncusine Brief with Peter Hofflin and Sonia Portillo.
1: In this edition of The Oncusine Brief, we interview Dr. Otis Brawley, the Chief Medical and Scientific Officer of the American Cancer Society. We talk with Dr. Browley about the past, present, and future of the fight against cancer, and what the American Cancer Society, as well as other leading oncology organizations, are doing to help treat and prevent cancer. We interviewed Dr. Browley at this year's American Association for Cancer Research Annual Meeting, which took place April 14-18, 2018, in Chicago, Illinois. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is The Youngest in Brief.
2: Dr. Otis Brawley is the Chief Medical and Scientific Officer of the American Cancer Society, and he is responsible for communicating and implementing goals dealing with cancer prevention, early detection, and improving treatment through research and education. Dr. Brawley is a Fellow of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, a Fellow of the American College of Epidemiology, and one of fewer than 1,400 physicians to be named a Master of the American College of Physicians in its more than 100-year history. Dr. Brawley is also an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine. In our interview, Dr. Brawley addresses some of the most pressing issues in oncology today, such as national cancer disparities and access to healthcare in lower-income areas, as well as implementing healthy lifestyle choices and reducing cancer risk factors in order to make the biggest impact possible on reducing the number of cancer-related deaths. We discuss how to meet these challenges as well as how to educate the public on preventing and reducing risks of cancer in our daily lives. Let's listen.
1: Dr. Brawley, from uh, what I understand um, is that your outlook on medicine and healthcare has been shaped by your experience in growing up in Detroit. Can
3: you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I grew up in the inner city of Detroit. Uh, I was... uh, In a neighborhood where there were a lot of people, a lot of the adults had never even thought about going to high school, not to mention college. Uh, A lot of blue-collar workers worked the factories uh, in the uh, auto industry. This is back in the 1960s and early 1970s. And uh, uh, I was the smart kid, and a lot of people supported me uh, through grade school, junior high school, and high school, and even into college, because I was the smart kid who was trying to do something. Uh, and uh, I learned a lot from those people. They were not highly formally educated, but they were very wise. And one of the things I learned was their fear of medicine. Uh, they were very frightful or concerned that doctors didn't care about them. They were very concerned that doctors didn't know what they were doing. They actually talked a lot about being experimented on, but what they actually met was the doctor didn't know if this treatment would work, so they would try this, and then they would try that. It wasn't, they were concerned about formal experimentation. Then when I got into medical school and uh, started practicing medicine afterwards, I realized that a lot of those concerns were actually incredibly appropriate. Uh, I learned that there were a lot of doctors and a lot of hospitals and healthcare systems that were very into making money. There were a lot of people who actually did not understand the science. Uh, they developed preconceived notions or prejudices and went forth with those and ignored what the scientific data actually was. And so I decided I wasn't going to be a doctor like that. And I have spent the last 30 years speaking out against people who have these preconceived notions, don't understand the science, and uh, uh, then try to go out and practice medicine. I've been very outspoken against people who practice medicine purely to make a profit.
1: So that, in one part, uh, slightly negative experience in in the relationship that people had with their doctor, um,
3: helped you to become a doctor? Helped me to become a doctor, helped me to shape a lot of my thoughts about what a doctor should be, helped me to be critical of medicine. And I would also point out that I was educated by the Jesuits, who... uh, uh, who love to tell people that uh, they don't teach people what to think they teach people how to think and so maybe a little bit of my cynicism came from my jesuit education a little bit of my um, uh, commitment towards science came from my realization now, a lot of the people who were supporting me were concerned that uh, doctors didn't really know science and didn't really care about them uh i, I should tell you that uh in medicine i have found that there are some really wonderful caring people and some really good scientists but there are also some people who care about money and who are not very good scientists
1: right and not being good scientists this is actually uh, refers to a book that you wrote uh, a few years ago how do how we do harm a doctor breaks ranks about being sick in america yes um in the book, you write uh, what the, the back and front cover basically indicates about the underbelly of American healthcare: uh, over-treatment of the rich, undertreatment of the poor, uh, financial conflicts, insurance companies that really do not care. Uh, in some sense, um, but the pharmaceutical company more in concerned about making money or selling drugs than anything else. Um, tell me a little bit more about about the reasons why you actually uh, start writing the book, because it seems to be very interesting.
3: Yeah, actually, uh, one uh, news reporter who read the book actually said uh, uh, Otis Brawley turned 50 and had a primal scream. Uh, but uh, what I really wanted to talk about, and we talk about some of the good things, too, in medicine, uh, but uh, the healthcare care system in the United States is filled with waste. The uh, National Academy of Medicine actually estimated that 30% of what we do in healthcare care is either waste or fraud. Uh, healthcare care is the most expensive uh, of any healthcare care system in the world is the U.S. healthcare care system. Uh, and that... Uh, having said that, we have huge disparities. We have really bad outcomes. Even some of the people who are well-insured and think that they're well in in our health care system have bad outcomes because of some of the stupid things that we do in medicine. And I was trying to point out some of those really stupid things and uh, trying to show that there is a path toward being very orthodox to the science, understanding what the science shows, and being very meticulous in how you practice medicine. And our outcomes could actually improve. Our costs could actually go down. At the same time, I wanted to show some of the things that are being done by everybody and quite honestly i criticize doctors i criticize nurses drug companies hospitals insurance companies lawyers everybody is part of the reason that the system is broken and when you look at
1: the system as such you also
3: look at solutions that's right tell that's me a little right. bit about it well one of the best criticisms I think I ever heard of the book was it's filled with these are all the problems, but there's not enough of what the solutions are, and that's what the next book is going to be about. Uh, briefly, I'll tell you, I think that if we are orthodox to the science, orthodox to what doctors are supposed to be, we are a, a healing profession. Definition of a profession is uh, a group of individuals who put the good of their customers or patients in this case above their own good. Uh, I think if doctors become doctors again, there are a lot out there, but we need a higher percentage of doctors to become doctors again. If uh, we start practicing, according to the science, trying to do the right thing, not make money, I actually think our outcomes can improve dramatically.
1: That's very hopeful in a lot of ways. Now let's uh, take a break real quick, and then after the break we will be back with uh, some more questions. Our guest today is Dr. Otis Brawley, the Chief Medical and Scientific Officer of the American Cancer Society. We're talking with Dr. Brawley about cancer, cancer treatment, screening, and prevention. And welcome back. This is the Oncusin Brave. And if you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Otis Brawley, the Chief Medical and Scientific Officer of the American Cancer Society. As an organization, the American Cancer Society, more than 100 years old, um, is a nationwide organization, community-based. is a voluntary health organization. It's dedicated to try to eliminate cancer as a major health problem uh, by preventing cancer, cancer prevention, um, saving lives, diminishing suffering from cancer, um, and you do that through research, education, advocacy uh, advocacy, and services that you provide that 's right so as an organization, I mean how important are these things that we just refer to
3: oh so, oh very important uh, in terms of uh, the American Cancer Society uh, educating patients. It's a really an educated consumer that gets the. Uh, it's an educated consumer that gets uh, good quality care. Uh, you want people to understand their disease. You want people to ask questions to engage their doctors. You know, even if you have the best doctor, if you are asking questions, engaged in the conversation, and engaged in what care you're getting, you're going to get the best out of that doctor. Even if that doctor goes into the room trying to give you his or her best, you're gonna get it by being engaged. So we wanna educate patients. A lot of problems in healthcare are actually access to health care getting a ride to the doctor or getting a ride to radiation therapy every day, Monday through Friday for six weeks, hard problem for a lot of folks. So the ACS is trying to provide services, helping people get transportation. We have hope lodges in a number of major cities where people can actually come and stay near the hospital when they're getting their treatment. Uh, these are sort of like Ronald McDonald houses, Mm -hmm. but for adults and in some areas, adults and children, uh, then, uh, we want to provide things like screening guidelines. Uh, we want our guidelines for screening to be science based. You know, some screening can actually be quite harmful, and some screening can be very helpful. Right. We want to make sure that people do the very helpful stuff. And then there are a lot of things in terms of laws in the United States that can be helpful to the cancer patient or or the patient who we hope will never be a cancer patient. You know, 40% of Americans do not live in uh, communities that have smoke-free legislation. I want to try to prevent every kid from being exposed to secondhand smoke, every adult from being exposed to secondhand smoke. Uh, perhaps the greatest work the American Cancer Society has done in its more than 100-year history is its work on tobacco control and smoking cessation. And uh, we are a part of the reason why uh, 55% of American men smoked in 1955, and now it's down to about 16%, 17%. Uh, smoking for women went from 35% of adults in 1965, and now it's down to about 15%. Those declines uh, are something that the ACS can be very proud of and claim that we are a part of the reason why those declines happen.
1: So when you look at that, um, and you look at a very modern kind of uh, tool in smoking, vaping, I think that is going to be a concern to you.
3: We are very concerned about vaping. Uh, Vaping uh, may have other health problems beyond cancer. Uh, Many people argue that vaping of nicotine can be useful in getting people off of tobacco, and that is true. I would prefer the smoker use one of the seven FDA approved nicotine uh, uh, devices or nicotine, t- uh, uh, we have nicotine drops, we have nicotine lozenges, nicotine gum, nicotine patches. There are seven different uh, instruments that can be used that are FDA approved. That's what I would hope someone would use to get off of tobacco along with support from their family, support from doctors, maybe even some psychological support. Uh, Some people prefer to use vaping uh, or e-cigarettes. My hope is that those people would be on e-cigarettes for the shortest possible time if they go that route. I cannot uh, overexpress the fact that uh, we don't know the science of e-cigarettes yet. Inhaling propylene glycol Uh, may not be the best thing for the lungs. We may eventually, 20, 30 years from now, see a lot of people with popcorn lung, pulmonary fibrosis, and other diseases due to e-cigarettes. So I'm I'm not a big fan of e-cigarettes. No, I can imagine.
1: Um, A lot of that um, education and a lot of that actually springs back also to um, the, the signing of the National Cancer Act in 1971, um, often referred to as the war on cancer. Um, how important was that step in American history in terms of, of cancer, fighting cancer? Well, when we look at uh,
3: what has happened in cancer over the last, really, 50 to 60 years, uh, there are two things that are really important. The Surgeon General's announcement in 1964 that tobacco causes lung cancer, and that led to other work that showed that it caused now 18 cancers, and the signing of the National Cancer Act in December of 1971. Now, that was legislation that was put forth by a number of congressmen on both the Republican and the Democratic side. Uh, Ted Kennedy referred to it as Richard Nixon declaring war on cancer. Richard Nixon never used the war analogy, But what it did was it put a lot of money in the basic research. It created a cancer control program so we actually knew in which direction the numbers were going. It actually created a cancer centers program, the NCI-designated cancer centers program. And it really galvanized the country in trying to do something in cancer, including uh, the clinical trials program that has given us a number of different wonderful treatments and a number of different wonderful drugs. Uh, The basic science funding has really paid off because our definition of cancer today is very different from our definition of cancer even 20 years ago. Mm. You know, from 1850 until really 2000, we had a definition of cancer that was just really driven by the biopsy. You know, German pathologists invented the technology of doing the biopsy. You look at something under the microscope, this is cancer. Today, we're looking at both the biopsy as well as genomics, what genes are turned on, what genes are turned off, what genes are mutated. And where this has led us to is uh, when I graduated from medical school in 1985, we had two kinds of uh, lung cancer non-small cell lung cancer and small cell lung cancer. I still don't know why we call it non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, But today, because of genomics, there are multiple types of non-small cell lung cancer, and this uh, determines what kinds of drugs we use to treat it. Certain drugs are more appropriate than other drugs. Uh, And the prognosis of all of those different kinds of lung cancer are all very different as well. And so our understanding of what cancer is has fundamentally changed because of that National Cancer Act and that investment in basic research.
1: So, the major step, indeed, very important. What role does the American Cancer Society play in the interplay between the the National Cancer Act, National Cancer Institute, uh, other organizations in, in helping this process? Well,
3: in the 1950s, the American Cancer Society was the largest funder of cancer research in the United States. We funded more cancer research than the National Cancer Institute. Uh, with the National Cancer Act, which was pushed by the American Cancer Society and our matriarch, Mary Lasker. She transformed the American Cancer Society in the 1940s and 50s and in the 1950s and 60s really campaigned for a National Cancer Act that was finally signed in 1971. Uh, the National Cancer Institute is now the largest funder of cancer research, uh, you know, well over $5 billion a year now. Uh, the American Cancer Society is a smaller funder of cancer research, 125 to $150 million a year. And we try to focus that uh, research in areas that the large governmental National Cancer Institute is unable to focus it. For example, in the 1990s, uh, the government uh, stopped setting aside money for young investigators and only funded... These large grants that were really geared toward the mid career person who's been doing this for 15, 20 years. We set aside money for young investigators.
1: Now, let's take another break, and after the break, we will be back with uh, some more questions. This is the Onkaseen Brief. I'm Peter Hoffland, back with Dr. Otis Brawley. Dr. Otis Brawley is the Chief Medical and Scientific Officer of the American Cancer Society. Now let's look at uh, disparities, um, look at access to care. Mm-hmm. If you look at um, access to care, and there are a lot of uh, so-called care studies that, are, uh, have, mm-hmm. that have been published over the years, um, and I guess you also addressed that in your book. Um, there is a um, what we call a significant overuse of medicine and yes. healthcare uh, in some populations while yeah. there is at the same time underuse yeah. in others now, if you simply put it, then some people are over treated um consume too much unnecessary health right. right and then um in they even can be harmed by by in that, but I believe mm-hmm. but at the same time, there is also a very large population of Americans who. Um, consume too little care, um, who may not have the necessary means, um, who simply do not have access. Yeah. And that can be part of um, health disparities in, in, in like mm-hmm. um, racial, so- social, economic, geographic in some cases. Mm-hmm. Now, we hear at the AACR, the Annual Meeting of the American um, um, Association, uh, Association of, of Cancer Research, that's correct. Um, and the president of the organization, Michael Caligiuri, the president for 2017-2018, when he became the president, he pledged that he was going to do something about this. Um, from where you are at the American Cancer Society, um, how is this changing and what are some of the important things that are still lacking?
3: Yeah, You know, we first started, this whole discipline was first called minority health, and we realized there was a problem really in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, Prior to that, there was really no attention at all to this. Uh, As it has matured over time, it started being called special populations research. Then it was called health disparities research, and now it's actually starting to morph and be called health equity And along the way, it it went from being black-white differences in outcome to realizing that there were more than black and white people in the United States, to realizing that some of the problem is socioeconomic status. Indeed, the greatest disparate population in the United States for health care is poor whites, especially poor whites in the southern United States. but what it has become the health equity movement is the realization that they're a group of human beings who are not doing as well in cancer and other diseases, and they're not doing as well in cancer and my disease because they don't get adequate preventative services, screening services, diagnostic services, treatment services, and once treated and cured even, they don't get good survivorship services. And the way we show these differences is we show black-white differences, we show rich-poor differences, we show tremendous differences by state. For example, we've had a greater than 50% decline in colorectal cancer death rates in Massachusetts over the last 30 years, but the decline in Mississippi is less than 20%. Uh, There are huge disparities Uh, in certain states versus other states. Uh, Massachusetts is actually, Massachusetts, Delaware, Connecticut, have very low rates of death from a number of cancers, whereas uh, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, uh, do really bad in a number of cancers. Uh, sometimes uh, the disparity is due to uh, state differences in taxation for tobacco. You know, we have more than 30 percent of people in Kentucky or Missouri or West Virginia smoking, whereas it's 10 percent or or less in Utah and California nowadays. Uh, that uh, dec- That decline, which actually started happening about 20 years ago, that disparity between smoking mm-hmm. now means that we have a lot more... Deaths from lung cancer in the states that have the long history of smoking versus states that have uh, now a history of relatively a low prevalence of smoking so if you look at those differences mm-hmm. um, in, in
1: regions in America, if you look at uh, maybe the availability of of money availability of of um, uh, tax uh, or government incentives. What are some of the things that you really can learn or pinpoint? I mean, how can you help uh, in that respect?
3: Well, already with the Affordable Care Act and some states electing to expand Medicaid so that everybody has coverage of some sort uh, and other states electing not to expand Medicaid, we are developing new state-by-state disparities. You know, it is very clear that uh, the colorectal cancer rate in arkansas death rate in arkansas is going down because they actually expanded medicare whereas when you look at some surrounding states like texas we don't see that happening because they chose not to expand medicare and not to give all adults some form of health insurance uh we we see uh Huge problems, by the way, in prevention and in diet. Uh, You've heard about food deserts. We've got certain states where you know the federal government recommends that people eat five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables per day. We have certain states where the average in terms of fruit and vegetable consumption is less than two servings per day. Well, so we, we 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 have huge disparities in preventive activities everybody wants to focus on treatment. I want to focus on the entire spectrum prevention all the way through survivorship. Um, You refer to food deserts uh, in Mm -hmm. America. Um, Tell us a little
1: bit more about that.
3: Yeah. Well, first off, um, we at the American Cancer Society have some wonderful epidemiologists. And in trying to figure out what could be Uh, We noticed that high school-educated, or college-educated, I should say, Americans have a much lower death rate from cancer than non-college-educated. We asked the question, if everybody in America had the risk of death from cancer of college-educated Americans, how many people would not die from cancer? And the answer is we estimate 610,000 Americans are going to die from cancer this year. But if everybody had the death rate of college-educated Americans, the, rate, the, the number would be 150,000 less.
1: That's a big difference.
3: 25% of all cancer deaths would go away if everybody had the prevention and all of the treatment and all of the things that college-educated Americans have. 25% of cancer deaths are preventable then even more preventable, keep in mind, of college-educated Americans, 7% smoke, 6 to 7% smoke. Of college-educated Americans, they're a group that have obesity and lack of exercise as a problem. We started looking at what are the big buys in terms of saving lives. Uh, the first one uh, is smoking. Uh, if there were no smoking, we would easily prevent about 170,000 deaths from cancer a year in the United States. Smoking is a big buy. We waste a lot of money on cigarettes, on tobacco. We waste a lot of money treating tobacco-related illness. If we could just get rid of tobacco, we would save a lot of money. Of course, we'd have to find something for the tobacco farmers and the tobacco industry people to do but we could find other jobs for those folks the next big one in terms of cancer prevention uh, about 100,000 lives a year are lost because of the combination of obesity not enough exercise and consuming too many calories it's a three-legged stool a lot of people think about obesity it's obesity too many calories and not enough exercise uh, energy balance is what the dietitians would want to say. Uh, that's the second leading cause of cancer in the United States. Then we have th- other things like alcohol. Alcohol causes uh, 4% of all cancer deaths. So we could actually prevent a lot of cancer deaths, and these are relatively inexpensive buys. Uh, let's counterbalance that with screening. I'm not against screening at all. But if we were to go to 90% of all Americans being up to date on colorectal cancer screening, uh, we would prevent about 30,000 deaths a year from colorectal cancer. If we went to 90% of all women being up to date on uh, breast cancer screening, we would prevent about six to 8,000 deaths per year. Um, well, let's take another
1: quick break. And then uh, we'll be back uh, with some more questions about uh, maybe screening. I mean, because we were talking about screening a little bit, uh, but there are probably more things about screening and diagnostics. And welcome back. And if you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Otis Brawley, Chief Medical and Scientific Officer of the American Cancer Society. Um, listening to some of the lectures that were given here over the last couple of days, um, we hear about uh, checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, we hear about antibody drug conjugates. Uh, we hear about novel diagnostics. Um, we hear about very difficult to treat cancers. Um, for example, triple negative breast cancer for which there was no hope for many, mm-hmm. many patients for many years. And now we seem to have uh, a way to th- to look or to treat those patients to some extent. Um, when you look at this whole body of, of knowledge that we have, how excited about you are you?
3: I am very excited. I'm very optimistic about the future. However, one of the things, and this is one of the things that us technical geeks in oncology have to be cautious of, we have this tendency to get very excited about a specific area and put all of our efforts into that one area. The companies especially, the small biotech companies, Uh, and the big companies will go in one particular area and then ignore other areas of oncology. Right now, everybody's excited about immunotherapy. I'm excited about immunotherapy, but I don't want us to start ignoring some of the precision medicines and some of the classic chemotherapies. Those things need to be developed at the same time that we developed immunotherapy. And I would point out, in the 1980s and 1990s, Uh, when Drew Pardole and Steve Rosenberg were out there, the only people doing immunotherapy, uh, the classic chemotherapy development was actually smothering out the immunotherapy. Now I see the immunotherapy smothering out the classic classic chemotherapy development. How important is that in um, the total care package? Oh, I'm very excited about some of the new diagnostics and especially some of the new screening. Some of the cell... Are some of the blood tests that we have that are going to be screens for cancer, looking for certain segments of DNA that might indicate a person has an early pancreatic cancer or an early lung cancer. I think these things are incredibly exciting. However, again, we need to be cautious, patient, and we need to be meticulous in our development of these things. So
1: because the, the chance is that if you are testing or diagnosing too early it may ultimately lead to over overuse well some of
3: these um, some of these early blood tests could easily get people in the following situation uh, mr Sh- mr smith we have bad news so we have good news and then we have really bad news the bad news is you have cancer the good news is we caught it early The really bad news is we don't know where it is and what to do about it. Uh, We're going to have to wait. And the patient thinks he's a ticking time bomb for a while. Eventually, we're going to develop these tests so that we're going to be able to say, Mr. Smith, you have an early cancer and it is in your pancreas and we're going to be monitoring your pancreas until we can find that cancer and do something about it. Now, that
1: brings it uh, back to clinical trials, and to uh, uh, and, and there is this uh, concept or this notion that uh, sort of like four, five, maybe six percent of people that may benefit from clinical trials um, actually are participating in clinical
3: trials. I think it's closer to three to four percent, actually, of uh, three to four percent of adults with cancer enter a clinical treatment trial. It's about 60 to 65 percent of kids with cancer. Is that a concern, that that there's not
1: really a lot of people actually participating? We
3: need to have more people go into clinical trials, and that's how we advance the science. We also need to be careful with our clinical trials. You know, there's 30 different immunotherapy drugs out there in clinical trials right now, and the immunotherapy drugs have sort of flooded the market for clinical trials to the point that they are slowing down the development of immunotherapy drugs. Uh, So we do need to support the clinical trials process. We need to have clinical trials widely available for everybody. Uh, Now, there's been some uh, concern about we're not putting enough minorities or blacks in clinical trials. Uh, The Enrolling minorities by race in the clinical trials to see if this drug works better in them or does not work in them, I don't buy that. Uh, When I look at health disparities by race in the United States, it's not because the drug doesn't work in black people. It's because black people don't get the drug. And, of course, if they don't get the drug, it doesn't work. Um, And so I'm less concerned about outcomes for drug products by race than many other people. Now, there are outcome differences by uh, area of geographic origin. Uh, And we need to be concerned about that. As we learn more about genomics, then we will be able to discern that. And genomics will be the key factor, not the width of somebody's nose or the color of their skin. When I say genomics, for example, it's a well-known fact that there's a large number of people from Asia who, when they drink uh, alcohol, when they drink spirits, they flush, they turn red. That's because they have a lower level of, a, of an enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase. Uh, that's very common in certain areas of Asia. We should not assume that everybody from Asia can't handle their alcohol, however. Right. Okay. Uh, same thing when it comes to looking at these drugs in people from Africa or Asia or, or people who are Native American. Uh, we need to look at the enzyme levels and not the outward color of skin or width of nose. Thank you, Dr. Briley. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
2: The American Cancer Society's mission is to free the world from cancer. Until we do, they will be funding and conducting research, sharing expert information, supporting patients, and spreading the word about prevention. For more information about the activities of the American Cancer Society, visit the organization's website at cancer.org. This edition of the Onkazine Brief was originally recorded on April 16, 2018. For us here at the Onkazine Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters, for your ongoing support. Thanks to your support, our program now has a wider reach with distribution via iHeartRadio, in addition to PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and the UK Health Radio. You can also download our program via iTunes and Google+. Our program can also be heard every Saturday between 1 and 2 p.m. in Arizona on KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona, reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about that and how to support this program, check our online journal OnCousine at OnCousine.com. You can also visit our page on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Brief.
1: We know that based on this interview, you may have questions. So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook or Twitter. We will post as many answers as we can on our website oncuisine.com that is o n c o z i n e.com. If you're living in the United States and wants to want to receive our weekly oncuisine newsletter, text the word cancer that is c a n c e r to 66866 and we'll make sure that you receive our uh, oncuisine newsletter. Thank you all and thank you for listening and join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hoffland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is The Onkazine Brief.
0: The Onkazine Brief was produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hoffland, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for The Onkazine Brief comes from listeners of this station, and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949-923-1660 or visit our website at onkazine.com forward slash underwriting. The Onkazine brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.
3: The Oncocene Brief is in part made possible by generous support from Kite Rocket. Kite Rocket, making brands more valuable. For more information about public relation beyond classic PR support, contact Martin Pirick at Kite Rocket in Phoenix
2: at 602-443-0030 or visit their website at kiterocket.com.